According to uh, one book, The Day America Told the Truth, uh, it was surveyed that 91% of people regularly embroider the truth. Uh, it, it can be from the I'm drug free of Lance Armstrong to the deceit that takes place on children's playgrounds. We seem to have an aversion to telling the whole truth. I mean, it, it, may, be, it may be little lies, it may be large lies. <clears throat> it can be the exaggeration of the media, it can be the half truths of uh, political fare, it can be plagiarism in academia. It can be um, broken marital vows in the home. We just seem to have an aversion to telling the whole truth to people. I mean, do you remember the first lie that you ever told? Or if you go back even over the last 30 days of your life, uh, when did you make a promise that you knew you probably couldn't keep or, or maybe spoke a half-truth or perhaps you exaggerated to promote yourself in a certain light. Or you told a story later on, but you kind of added a few things that made you look a little better. Or, or perhaps you rationalized to save yourself some embarrassment. I mean, Jesus calls for us to pursue a, a radical, a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees. And we've kind of seen what this looks like. You know, in other words, a greater righteousness isn't avoiding murder, but it's actually overcoming anger. It's not simply avoiding adultery, but it's pursuing purity. It's not simply um, avoiding divorce, except for that marital exception, but it's rather to have a God-centered marriage. Well, today, Jesus is speaking about a greater righteousness in terms of our speech, that the citizen of the kingdom has a radical desire to be truthful. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, with all the issues we have in this world, I mean, we have, you know, the nuclear issues with uh, North Iran and or um, North Korea and Iran. We have this Arab Spring that's going left. You have this crescent in North Africa. We have our own financial issues. We have a cultural divide in our country that's widening between conservatives and liberals. I mean, it's profound the problems that we have on both a national and international scale, and we're worried about a few white lies. What's the big deal with speech? Well, actually, it's a huge deal, and, and I want to convince you of that today. You know, it's Jesus in, John, or, um, in Matthew 12 that said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we say and how we say it and the degree of truth with which we speak is, is quite revealing about who we are as people, down to who we are at our core. So it is a significant, I, I, I want you to see this as a significant issue. And what I'm going to do today is something I, I hope that you'll see as simple, simple, not sinful. <laughs> Don't want to do that from the pulpit. Uh, it was simple, but, but helpful. And that is that I want to kind of talk about how we twist truth to our favor. How we twist it in ways that are beneficial to us. And then, and then how we tell the truth in a way that's liberating and God glorifying. Just two things, twisting and telling the truth. So if you'd read with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 33 to 37. Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, 
for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So look right at the beginning. In verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said. Jesus is showing us as this is still in that string of responses that he's making to the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were very much like us. We want to boil God's word down into something doable, measurable, observable, shrink wrap it so that we can obey it and find ourselves as righteous before God. So we like to narrow things down and then say, yeah, I'm doing that. Like keeping the law of murder just at murder, not at anger. Well, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm righteous before God. Not looking at the internal. So what Jesus is doing is he's going to expose the level of truthfulness that he's calling his people to do. And it's a deep truthfulness, very deep. Look what he says. He says, you shall not swear falsely or shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, he is quoting what's been taught to the people. Now, that is not an exact verse from the Old Testament. It's actually a combination of two verses, probably from Leviticus and Numbers. Two things, he says, don't swear falsely, and if you're going to swear, then complete what you've sworn. In other words, complete your oaths. If you've made promises, complete them, fulfill them. Now, folks, that is not a problem. Jesus isn't contradicting this at all. The Old Testament speaks volumes about oath-taking and oath-making. It's a fine thing. In fact, Moses kind of regulated it. He said, just make sure it's in the name of God. When you make a promise, it's in the name of God, that you're going to do it in truth, not surreptitiously, and you're going to fulfill what you promise. Oaths are important things. Making promises are good things. It's it's a way to, to make an event solemn, if it's a marriage or if it's a contract or if it's an important issue in life. We'll often take an oath. Uh, it's a way of engendering honesty. So there's nothing wrong here. What he's saying is that just keep your oaths. In other words, if you're going to make them, respect them. Now, the oath um, Moses is teaching on oaths wasn't being practiced at the time. At least in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees kind of began to parse what Moses was saying. So here's, what, here's the problem. Here's what they were practicing. That if you made an oath in the name of God, it would have to be fulfilled. If you made an oath by some other name or by some other importance, it, perhaps it's something significant. I promise I'll do this on my mother's grave. It's very near and dear to me then it is not as binding. So if it's made in the name of God, it's binding. It's not in the na- if it's not made in the name of God, it's not binding. In fact, the Mishnah, the Mishnah is a book of Jewish law. They have a whole tractate, or let's call it a chapter, that has considerations about what makes one vow doable and what makes one vow avoidable. And so people would make proclamations. I promise on the gold of the temple. You'll see that in Matthew 23. Or as Jesus' example shows, I promise, I promise on heaven itself, or I promise on earth, I promise by the hairs on my head, may I die if I don't fulfill my vow. And, and they had parsed things that if they didn't involve the name of God, they weren't subject to fulfilling it. And if somehow they weren't able to fulfill it, that's okay, they're still righteous before God. So it became a tragedy of justice. I mean, it became a, a, a focusing on silly oaths. It became a, a problem of trying to, 
on, on parsing and, and using technicalities to get out of the commitments that you've made. People weren't being truthful. It's kind of like when we say, I'll pray on a stack of Bibles, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We make these pronouncements to encourage believability. And yet at the same time, we're looking for ways to not have to fulfill our commitments and our words. Okay, so Jesus takes issue with this. And he says, don't swear at all. In other words, Jesus now, as the interpreter of the Old Testament, comes and he, he opposes this idea of, of kind of legalistically working around the truth of your words. He's opposed to it. And look at what he says. He, he exposes their hypocrisy. He says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. They took oaths by heaven. He says, it's still the throne room of God. Or he says, don't make an oath by earth. It's still his footstool or Jerusalem. It's still the city of the great king. Or don't take an oath by your head. It's, you can't make one hair white or black. In other words, he says, don't think that you're subverting God by not using his name. God owns heaven. He puts his feet on the earth. Jerusalem is his city. Your head, he's giving you life. So, so I mean, don't think that we can speak in a way that is outside the purview of God. Or that somehow we're going to be able to say, well, let's avoid certain language, and that way God's not going to hold us accountable. So Jesus is exposing this. And, and so, so that, now, now we, I know we're thinking right now, well, we're not so unsophisticated to be caught on such technicalities. But let's hold on. Maybe we are. I, I want to kind of talk about how we twist words in our own day. Now, I recognize there's going to be some things that are going to cause confusion for you. Number one, we think about, well, like we do tell lies. Like I may get false information, and I tell it to you like it's true information. And I am technically lying. I'm not speaking about those errors where I believe something to be true and I'm sharing it. I'm not speaking about that. I'm not speaking about you're driving to a surprise party and your wife says, hey, where are we going? And, well, we're just going to the store. Yeah, I'm not talking about those non-events where you're just trying to keep a surprise party under wraps. I'm also not speaking about even the higher ethical dilemmas that take place when, when these biblical absolutes seem to come in in conflict with each other. For example, you're in, you're, in Nazi, you're, you're in Holland, and it's 1942, and you're hiding some Jews up in your attic, and a Nazi comes to the door, and he says, do you have Jews living here? And you have a moral responsibility to obey the government, even evil governments. And so what do you say to him? You also have a moral responsibility to love your neighbor as yourself, meaning that you upstairs, that you're going to know that if you report him, he's going to die. And we call this competing moral absolutes. What do we do in these situations? These are very difficult. But I would say for today, they're very rare. They're very rare. And I don't want your mind swinging off into these theological or even philosophical discussions when the bulk of our language is what I'm going after, just the everyday conversation on how we speak to one another. That's what I'm going after. Those are great questions. Worthy of discussion, please come forward later if you'd like to talk about, you know, some books and some things to read on that. But I want to go after just the bulk of how we speak to one another. Uh, number one, I think the way we twist the truth is by compartmentalizing life. Many of us live in this sacred, secular distinction that private life and public life, that I'm going to do this with my life in, in, in the home, but I'm going to do this in the office. That's just the way business runs, you're going to tell me, Tom. That's just the way it is. You know, it's like the CEO of a fast food chain. Here's what he said. On Sunday, it's God, family, hamburgers. On Monday, 
It's hamburgers, family, God. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. God looks at all of life. He doesn't allow us to live in this dualistic life where I've got to be this way in the office to make a buck, but I'm going to be this way. That's the old church angel and house devil. It doesn't work. That, that is exposing. It's a way that we can get around living by truth. But secondly, the way we parse things. You know, remember in, in English, you would parse a verb. You would determine, is it nominative? And you, you, you would, or you, you would determine if, if the verb is active or if it's, if it's an aorist or past tense. You would, you would determine, is it third person? Is it first person? You would parse it. Or you take a word and you break it down to understand it. We love technicalities. We love exceptions. I didn't say that. Or the famous line from Bill Clinton, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, but then we got to parse what a sexual relations look like. And we begin to twist words. I mean, if you buy a car and you get a warranty. You know, this is classic parsing. It's 32 pages long. If the car breaks, they're going to fix it. But then, well, it's if this breaks, but you've got to pay for this. And then you, you have all these little technical exceptions to what they said they would do. That's a form of parsing. Now, I want you to know that there is a... That this comes from, uh, from much philosophical thought, how we've bought this. There was a man by the name of Derrida. He was a French thinker. He just died in 2004. Most of us don't even know his name. And yet he espoused this idea that, that words don't really have meaning, or they have meaning according to the author that says them. And so words can have different meanings. And he's called the father of deconstruction. Because deconstructionism, because what he does is he's trying to advance this idea that everybody can import different meaning to the same word. And what it does is it deconstructs our ability to even communicate. So the words that I share with you, well, that's not really what I meant by that word. And I want you to know that much of our cultural struggle with truth now has come from philosophy of the last 20, well, even more than that, the last two centuries, but even up to this, the last... Um, 50 years of, uh, this man was very, very popular in the 60s. So, so we don't want to parse words. That's a way of twisting truth. Uh, exaggeration would be another example. Exaggeration can be very funny, but we can also use it in a way to protect ourselves. We name drop, oh, I was with so-and-so. And, and they may not be the friend that you've purported them to be, or perhaps to protect ourselves, to, to shield ourselves from embarrassment, or, or, or what what we could call a politism. You know, so men, if your wife comes down and they look at you and they say, honey, does this dress make me look fat? Okay, what do you do with that? Well, if you say yes, you've got a bad night ahead. If you hesitate, they're very fast on that. You, you won't last. You, you might as well just get up and leave the room. But what do you do in a situation like that? You know, you, you do want to tell the truth. You do want to be kind. It, it, is a, it is a struggle where we can sometimes justify doing things. Or you're angry and someone comes up to you. Nick and I were talking about this. And someone says, are you angry? No, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. We hide our feelings. We disguise ourselves. And we begin to twist truth uh, for various reasons. Um, others rationalize. You know, we, we can rationalize. When I mean rationalize or relativize language, relativize. I'm taking truth and I'm making it more fluid. David Wells was a theology professor that I studied under, and he talked about the privatization of truth. I will take truth and I will redefine it for my situation. 
We do this all the time with the speed limit. You know, if there's 40 mile an hour speed limit, you're driving, you may be in a situation where you're really in a hurry and you've got to get there. And then you begin to justify and say, you know what, some DOT guy determined 40 miles an hour was proper for this road, but I can go a mile over. What's the big deal? It's an arbitrary number. It could be 40, it could be 45, it doesn't really matter. In this situation, I determine I don't need to obey that law. And I'm going to now change it according to the situation that I'm in. And we can twist truth the same way. Now, I want you to know that that this is an affront to God in the sense of not caring for truth. That God is a God of truth. That he dwells in light. There is no darkness in God. That God is absolutely perfect as Keith. Did you not kind of feel like you were being drawn up in the throne room of God? He is perfect in every way. And we as his people are to put aside falsehood. And these are ways that we twist the truth. Now, why do we do it? I mean, why are we so open and available to twisting truth? Well, a a couple reasons. Number one is I think we want to avert threat. We want to avoid trouble. When trouble comes, we will think of an answer to get out of trouble. So the parent says, hey, have you done your homework to the kids? And, of course, the kids say, oh, yeah, almost finished. When maybe you're not really almost finished. It's just the shading of the truth. Maybe you're 30% done. You know you got a lot, bit more, uh, a lot more, but you're just almost done. That way it pulls the heat off you. Or if you're at the office and someone says, hey, is that project going to be ready for the meeting on Monday? You say, yeah, yeah, oh, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I'm still waiting some information from some, somebody else. You know, you haven't done your part yet, and yet you shift it over here. We do this all the time. Fear comes in, and we begin to change truth. Remember, growing up in a Catholic church, um, I was required to go to confession. I've shared this with a few of you, but I was required to go to confession. And when you go to confession in the Catholic Church, what you do is you go into a little cubicle, and it's next to another cubicle, and the priest is in that cubicle, and, and you're in this, the confessor's in this cubicle, and there's a little screen between you. You can't see each other, but you can hear each other. And so you go into the cubicle, and you, you tell the sins, your sins to the priest, and then the priest gives you this prayer of absolution, you know, pronouncing the forgiveness of Christ on you. And, um, and we used to have to go as a class. And so uh, the, the one guy, my friend's in the, in the box talking to the priest, and then I'm outside the box, and then there's a string of guys that are all going to be going one after another so that we can all have confession in this 15-minute time frame. So the guy in the box in front of me, I don't know what he's telling the priest, but he's getting blistered. I mean, I can hear the priest yelling at him. And he was yelling at him, thinking, oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, and you're supposed to be thinking through your sins, so when you get in the box, you can confess. And I'm thinking, well, that really wasn't a sin. And You know, I didn't really mean to do that when I did that. When I said that, I really wasn't thinking that. And all of a sudden, because I'm thinking, I'm not going in the fire pit with that priest. There is no way. And and so I cleaned up my whole life very quickly. I went in there, had two or three sins, got out. I didn't get yelled at or anything. I was scared. I I was scared of bearing the brunt of this guy like he bore it. And so I lied. I lied. I twisted the truth. I adjusted it. I was afraid. So we do this all the time. We also lie to promote ourselves. We we lie to, to create an image and an identity that we think people might respect us or love us. I mean, <clears throat> I hate to say this. I think I'm, I'm not taking a swing at Facebook, but I'm saying it is a platform in which you can display a picture of yourself that is not true to form. The pictures of the people are often almost like out of them. I mean, it, it's almost like out of some 
photography studio. I mean, they're, they're beautiful, and their lives are rich and famous, and you're thinking they're traveling the world with the way they're telling you about their lives. It, it, it's a platform. It, it's the same thing at work, though. What about the falsifying, falsifying of um, resumes? I mean, at some seriously high levels. Resumes, or even these archaeologists inventing things that they've found. Why? To promote themselves. The tendency is to lie to promote oneself before others. So, so what do we do about this? We twist the truth to, because of fear of danger or discovery or perhaps promoting ourselves. What do we do about this? Well, I, I think it's an issue of the heart, frankly. I, I think what Jesus is going after is the heart. And that's why I said at the very beginning in Matthew twelve thirty four, he says that it's, out of the, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. I don't think you can just tighten the bolts down on your language. I don't think you can just say, I've got to try harder today and not lie. I don't think you'll be able to do it. I think for the non-Christian, I would say this, and I don't mean to sound bold, but, but I, well, I do mean to sound bold. I don't mean to sound condemning. I don't think you can change apart from being born again. I, I mean, the heart, when I speak about the heart in Christian terms, I'm not speaking about the seat of your emotions per se. I'm speaking about that central, that place where your most um, important commitments are made, your greatest desires are stored, what you really want in life, what you think is really valuable, what you desire most. And it's out of that that your language is going to be birthed because your language is going to try to serve and get those things satisfied. So if your greatest commitment is going to be to material success in the marketplace, then you will be subject to justifying, rationalizing, backbiting, lying, half-truths to make sure you get up that corporate ladder. If your greatest commitment is to look good to your peers, then you're going to justify, you're going to lie, you're going to twist truth to make sure that you promote yourself to the people that you want to be respected by. And so to change this twisting problem that we have, we must be born again. We must have a new heart that, that you know, Jesus even said, he says that uh, to enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. And so to have kingdom speech, we must be born again. Now, for the Christian here, to be born again doesn't mean that you're now over the hump in being tempted. But now, being born again, God has given you a heart that is no longer curved in on yourself, but actually curved towards God and open to God and desirous of God. And then, and then God, in his mercy, doesn't just give you that new curving to him, but he also gives you the Spirit. And then the Spirit is within us, moving us to want to follow what he says. And that, again, the promise in Jeremiah 31, that he's going to give us a Spirit to move us to obey the commands of God. We need the Spirit so that when we are tempted to maybe shade the truth to make ourselves look better in that argument, that we're going to stop. The Spirit brings to our mind and you just cease or you stop. Or if you fall down and you sin, that you have the confidence to go back and confess. In fact, there have been a number of times in the past number of months where people have come back to me voluntarily and said, I lied to you when I said this. I was in fear or whatever the reasons they gave were. And my respect for them soared. It's evidence of God's spirit that they would come back and confess that. So, so we must be born again. Uh, for the, for the non-Christian here, 
you cannot, you, you have these commitments in your soul that you're too protective of. You will, you will speak in a way to get those fulfilled. And so, so I would encourage you, if you are convicted in this, if you're convicted in your ability to not shade truth and lie, please come forward, we'd love to talk to you. But for the believer here, you're asking to be filled with God's spirit. You're asking that, that God desires truth in our inward parts. That's what you're pleading for, you're praying for. And when you do fail, you repent. You repent and then walk by faith, confessing and writing those things that you misspoke. Okay, but Jesus has a better way for us. He has a different way for us. Look back with me in, in 34. He says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Now, let me just stop there for a minute because a lot of people have read that and said, we can't make any more promises. We can't take oaths, not in a courtroom and not in a wedding ceremony. This was the Anabaptists of the 16th century, and it's also George Fox, who was an English dissenter of the 17th century. In fact, George Fox was the one that was in prison that he wouldn't take an oath. He, he would not put his hand on the Bible and say, I swear to God. And it's because of him that later on the courts changed to say, you don't have to say, put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to God. You can say, I affirm to tell the whole truth. He would not do that. Now, was he right? Well, I appreciate his desire to walk closely to the words of Christ. I love that. But I'm just not sure if it's not another form of legalism. In other words, is he saying don't take an oath at all ever? Well, he's saying, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem. In other words, he qualifies what he means by don't take oaths. And he qualifies it by saying, don't use people or places or references to somehow bolster your words. Now, we know this has got to be the case because God himself takes oaths. In Hebrews chapter 6, we read, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, surely I'll bless you and multiply you. We know Jesus before Caiaphas. Caiaphas held him under oath and said this, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes. So he worked within an oath. Paul spoke in Philippians 1.8 and Romans 1.9, 2 Corinthians 1.23. Let me just give you one example. He says, for God is my witness. In other words, he's making an oath and he's calling God down. I swear to God, he's saying, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. So he's making a promise, an oath that he's praying. So I don't think he's prohibiting oaths here. He's prohibiting fraud, uh, fraudulent or foolish or silly oaths. In fact, he makes it very clear in verse 37. He says, let what you say just be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, just say what you mean and mean what you say. Speak honestly. Speak clearly. Speak in such a way that you don't need to make an oath. In other words, make oaths unnecessary because your character is so strong in terms of its integrity, you don't need to say, I really do promise I'll do this for you. Because whenever you bring a promise or an oath on, you're almost asking me to not believe you. We want to make sure, so with oaths, just, just for your clarification purposes, I would encourage the cautious use, use of oaths, of promises. I think they're appropriate in a courtroom. I think they're, pro, they're appropriate in um, marriage ceremonies. I think they're appropriate given uh, an important, unique occasion. Uh, I would encourage you 
to not be frivolous about throwing out. I promise I'll do it. Because remember, he says, you can't make your hair white or black. So let's not fall guilty of being presumptuous. That's why with, with um, most of our oaths that we ever take in this church, we always add, by the grace of God. I will do this by his grace. I need his grace. I don't want to be presumptuous. But, you know, we do take oaths here. When every one of you joined this church, you promised publicly that you would pray for the leadership. Do you? Have you kept that oath? You prayed that you would give generously. You prayed that you would engage in the ministries. You prayed that you would engage the leadership if you struggle or have a hardship on something. Have you kept those oaths? I mean, they're important, they're valuable, they're significant. We want to be cautious, but we don't want to avoid them. But also, we want to speak the truth lovingly. You know, truth can be so confrontational. Sometimes the truth of a situation can really be quite almost borderline brutal. And so we want to be careful and speak the truth in love. When we do make our yeses yes and our noes no, we want to do it in a way that's considerate. Just because you may think it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And just because it's true doesn't, need, doesn't mean it necessarily has to come out in the most unadorned way. So we want to be loving. We want to be considerate. We want to make sure that our declaration of truth helps people. It doesn't hurt people. That doesn't mean that if it hurts them, we shouldn't say it. I'm not saying that. But what I mean is we want to be more considerate of the person to whom we speak. So let me march you back to the beginning of the sermon the beginning of the sermon in Twisting the Truth, they were working their oaths in a way that protected them without regard to their neighbor. I'm saying speak the truth lovingly with regard to your neighbor. And then I'd also say speak the truth simply. He says simply make your yes, yes, and your no's no. There is, I love the proverb, it's uh, Proverb 10, it says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. To speak simply as opposed to just think that more is better with words. Oftentimes, more is not better with words. So, so you have this scripture where Jesus is condemning our twisting of truth, and he's promoting telling the truth, telling the truth simply, telling the truth lovingly, telling the truth for the benefit of another. This is a real challenge. So I want to encourage you just with a couple thoughts here regarding... Uh, how we tell the truth, or why we tell the truth. I, wanna, I want you to, to be encouraged in, in greater measure to tell the truth. Um, number one, when you tell the truth, this is just a little four-point application for you to consider. I want to excite in you a renewed desire to speak the truth uh, to one another. Uh, number one, that truth-telling does display the glory of God. That God is a God who dwells in light, in perfection, in truth. There is no darkness in him. In fact, in 1 John we read, but those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. In other words, when you and I walk in truth, we are displaying God to people. When we walk in falsehood, in shadows, in half-truths, we are deluding, we are mitigating the influence that we can have in displaying God. God is a God of truth. We walk in truth, and as we walk in truth, even to our detriment, we display a valuing, a beauty of God. I, was, uh, I came across, I'm reading that book, Delighting in the Trinity. Some of you, I think, are reading it with us. We're reading it 
as a staff. It's a great book, Delighting in the Trinity. It really takes the Trinity, which can seem so abstract sometimes, and it really makes it much more tangible, much more graspable to understand. It's a very, very good book. And in this book, he uh, quotes C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, if you remember, he wrote the, uh, the book Screwtape Letters. And in this book, uh, Screwtape is this senior demon, and he's working with an understudy. And he's trying to coach this demon into being more effective at attacking and undermining the truth of God's people. And so it's written from that kind of backward slant where Screwtape is obviously working against the people of God. And here's what he says in, in one of the writings. He says, one must face the facts. So he's speaking to another demon, and he's speaking against God's people. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love, that's God's love, for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We, remember now he's speaking for the demons, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. So when you tell the truth, you are looking like God. You are displaying his glory. You're displaying his majesty. It may involve cost to you. But the truth reveals God to people. And I want to encourage you to walk in that truth. But secondly, the truth also (coughs) displays our trust in the providence of God. In other words, we're tempted to lie when we're under threat, when there is a cost to us speaking truth. It may be a cost at the office by missing a promotion if you don't play the game that everybody else is playing. It may be a cost in a friendship. It may be a cost in terms of some conflict within a family member to speak the truth. But when you do speak the truth, you're revealing that I'm putting myself in the providence of God. To tell the truth means I'm going to submit myself to you, God, and I'm going to allow you to lead and direct me and sustain me in the midst of this trial. So there there is an actual entrusting oneself to God when you tell the truth because you know that the truth is rarely non-confrontational. And so you have to entrust yourself. The proverb gives us encouragement. He says, He says, O Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? That's the question, and then he gives the answer. He says, He who speaks the truth from his heart has no slander on his tongue, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keep his oath even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. That's where we're most subject to begin to waver on truth-telling. It reveals that you're submitting yourself to his providence. God, I'm resting in your care on this one. I'm going to tell the truth for your glory. I know you'll take care of me. And, and then thirdly, telling the truth also does deliver you from the natural entanglement that lying and half-truths and exaggerations get into. You know how one lie demands another, which demands another, and it has that snowball effect. If you were, ever remember as a kid, you lied to your mom, 
And then moms are pretty smart. They ask you another question. Then you've got to create another lie to cover that lie. And then that just, at that point, you ought to just raise the white flag because it's just going to start snowballing on you. But, but, but as adults, we play fast and loose with exaggerations, half-truths. We just kind of, we, we justify ourselves for not speaking what really needs to be said. And, uh, and you begin to get yourself into that. That becomes your identity. You begin to walk in that. That becomes your new language. And it's very, very hard to pull out of that. And so telling the truth disentangles you from that. It, it removes the hypocrisy in your life. You know how you feel. If you kind of shade the truth to promote yourself, and you have that sick feeling, I can't believe I just said that to that person. And I did it because I wanted them to like me or respect me. And there's that sense of, of really kind of self-loathing that we have. And, 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 and telling the truth disentangles you from that. Even to go back and repent. You know what? I shouldn't have said that. I was promoting myself. Please forgive me. I've said that to people. It's very freeing. And, and then last, uh, telling the truth. I forget what the last one is. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. How could I forget this? It, it deepens relationships. I mean, truth generates trust. And trust generates a transparency and a deepened relationship. If in a church community we don't speak the truth to one another in love, if we don't speak the truth to one another in love, trust cannot, exi- uh, trust cannot exist. We move to individualism. I mean, we begin to become self-protective. We begin to be suspicious of people. And, uh, and it works against us growing into one body. And Paul even encourages us this in Ephesians. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, with each part working properly, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. So truth-telling builds us towards one another, but also not just in the relationship in the church what about your marriage how many of you in marriage walk with a degree just kind of a a low ebb of dishonesty perhaps of of sheltering things i don't want carol and i were talking about this last night sometimes she may be tempted to not want to rock my world by telling me the truth i said you got to tell me the truth it's not helping me if you don't tell me. In other words, our relationship can't grow to the depth it needs to grow unless we're really being honest with each other, even if it initially causes some conflict. That conflict can be very good for the overall development of Christ-likeness in our lives. So truth-telling is essential. It's essential because it reveals who you are. And as you tell the truth, it displays God to people. So we don't want to twist the truth. So here's what I would encourage you. Um, that if you do see a pattern of twisting that you have been doing, then repent before God, ask his forgiveness, ask for the spirit to fill you that you can repair the twisting that you've done with the people that you have lied to or sheltered truth from or spoken half-truths. Now, I'm not looking for you to get a pencil out and to try to fix it all the last 20 years. But even if you just start today and look at last week, and then begin to ask God's Spirit to give you the grace to begin telling the truth. Let me show you the impact on this. So a number of years back, I want to go seven, eight years ago, we had a, a missions conference here, and we had an Iranian pastor speak. And this Iranian pastor, he was a Muslim, 
And uh, he came to faith in Christ, and he shared his testimony. And here's his testimony. He was at the mall, I think, if I remember the story. He was at the mall, and a, a woman and her daughter came up and just, I think, shared the gospel with them. And uh, they got into a discussion, and this woman invited him to come back and to meet her husband and to have a meal with them. And it began to develop a friendship where they were sharing the gospel. And uh, so this man kept coming. And every time they get together, the family was harmonious, and they would pray before a meal. And, uh, and he was just impressed. He had never seen that before. And so over the months, uh, a friendship developed, and he was getting overwhelmed with the reality of the gospel in this family's life. But he didn't believe them. He wasn't sure if they were really telling the whole truth. And so he, he testified to this. He would park his car outside their house at night and look through the window and watch if they still prayed and if they still had dinner and if they still seemed to be as peaceable as they were when he wasn't there. Now, they were. And that, through the Spirit of God, was used to bring this Muslim to faith in Christ. Now, I know it may be a head-scratcher for you, and you're just wondering, wow, can would somebody really do that? That was his own testimony. I'm only telling you what he told us. But the reality of it is, you're watched. You're seen. Not just with your kids, with your neighbors. And if we play fast and loose with truth, it denies God the glory that he deserves. If we speak in truth, in love, then it declares his glory. So let's take a few minutes now, and we're going to pray. I'm going to open us up. Uh, because we're praying as a church, I would encourage you to pray loudly so that we can hear you. Make sure your faces are pointed up. I don't want to be legalistic about it. I love to hear what you pray so I can say amen to it. Yes, please, Father, bring about an answer to that prayer. I would ask you to pray briefly that others could pray. And then Ray's going to close us in just a few moments. And for those of you who are under deep conviction right now, speak to God about it silently. Appeal to him for grace and strength. If you confess your sins... Scriptures tell us that he's faithful and he's just to cleanse you, wash you clean from all your sins. Let me start and then Ray will close us. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've given to us in Christ, that it is true that uh, he has given us truth and the truth will set us free. Father, give us the grace now to walk in light of this word so that you would be honored, Father, and that in that we would have our greatest joy.